Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the status of a COVID-19 vaccine and the steps necessary to distribute an effective one. To examine this are IDSA members Dr. Katherine Edwards of Vanderbilt University and Dr. Walter Ornstein of Emory University. Thank you both for joining us. Dr. Edwards, I'd like to start with you. How would you characterize the current state of COVID-19 vaccine research? The status of the research on vaccines has been unbelievable. I think the number of of vaccine candidates that are being proposed, the number of approaches to vaccine, different types of vaccine, and the commitment of of industry and um, academia and government has been extraordinary. As we know, there are a number of different products that have already been studied in phase one trials. Overall, the the data from the small phase one trials that have included, um, you know, hundred or so people have been very reassuring. The vaccines have generated immune responses that neutralize the virus actually in the test tube that suggests that there is really good antibody that functions to attack the virus and prevent its infection. And the safety oils have been by and large reassuring. That has led to um, some uh, adjustment in doses. Some of the initial studies um, uh, in some of the doses were associated with fever and those doses were turned down and and there's been less fever. Um, And so then um, attention to both the the safety of the vaccines and and to really finding the vaccines to make them safe, but also um, the, the are very encouraging that the, the immune responses are um, look very promising and, and will likely be able to neutralize the virus. Vaccines now are in or going into, depending upon the status of them, phase two trials, which are larger studies in thousand, you know, several thousand people um, that are looking at, uh, at safety in larger numbers of people and immune responses in larger number of people. Um, the phase one studies have included normal, healthy adults, 18 to 55, but now are also including older people and, and the preliminary data um, that I have seen in the older people are also very encouraging, which is exciting because um, you know, certainly flu vaccines don't work as well in older people, but the preliminary data suggests that the immune response of the COVID-19 vaccines in normal older people is, is, is very good as well. Um, what is then going to happen after the phase two studies occur, those data will be quickly uh, analyzed and, and we'll have to go to the FDA and FDA will say, yes, you can go ahead further in the phase three trials. And the phase three trials are planned to be be somewhere between 20 and 30,000 people that will be randomized either to the vaccine or to a placebo. And then uh, over the next six months, those vaccinees will be very carefully assessed for for COVID-19 to see if the disease is prevented by the vaccine. So things are going very well. They are going at warp speed, but they are not going without the same careful attention to detail uh, that the FDA requires and that that vaccine manufacturers adhere to for, for decades. 
the World Health Organization has uh, a site on its website for the landscape of uh, COVID-19 candidate vaccines. And as of July 7th, there were 21 candidates in clinical trials around the world and uh, 139 in preclinical development. I've never in my 40 years in vaccinology seen an effort this broad. The preliminary results are encouraging. Thank you for your insights, doctors. Dr. Edwards, sticking with you, you just mentioned the Food and Drug Administration, and I know you have a lot of experience working within that agency. It just issued industry guidance on the development and licensure of a COVID-19 vaccine. The guidance states that the primary efficacy endpoint estimates for a placebo-controlled efficacy trial should be at least 50%. Does this mean the vaccine is safe and effective? The document that provides guidance, I thought, was very carefully um, written. We need to realize that for each vaccine, the goal of the FDA is to assure that the vaccines are safe, are pure, and they are potent. And potency means that they are effective. So the guidance document, there are um, a number of of guidance points, and one is that the vaccine would have to be 50% um, effective for prevention of disease with the lower bound of confidence um, uh, greater than equal to 30%. So it would say that their vaccine does have to have um, efficacy before they would license it. But also in the the document, it it provides assessments and and concerns that the vaccine be be assessed as being safe. So that's part of all of this is that the vaccine has to be safe. So they're just defining some of the principles and the efficacy principle relates to the potency part of that. But all of the vaccines that are studied um, after phase one, after phase two, and after phase three, all of that safety data goes to the FDA, the entire dossier. And the FDA pours over those documents to to assess the safety. Most all of the time uh, when vaccines are ultimately licensed, the FDA also mandates that there be safety assessment that is conducted after licensure. And and so that is also a part of it as well. So the safety part is a given. Um, I think that the definition of the efficacy in this document is is just to define sort of what their criteria for for the potency or the efficacy will be. I was pleased with the document. I think it it provides a lot of of insight. I think it provides a lot of of thought. It gives guidelines. I think it was also very insightful in in thinking about pregnant women um, and and making sure that that we think about them and thinking about children. And and, um, it also defined um, how the FDA would would look at uh, what is a um, what is a case of COVID? So that was helpful to know as well. And, and so I think that the, the guidance document was, was very inclusive, and I was very pleased with, with how it was constructed. Thank you, Dr. Edwards. Dr. Ornstein, turning to you now, the FDA guidance also notes that FDA may issue an emergency use authorization for a COVID-19 vaccine after statutory requirements are met. FDA would make EUA decisions on a case-by-case basis. 
Do you think there are scenarios in which an EUA for a COVID-19 vaccine would be appropriate? What we're seeing right now is uh, about a thousand people dying a day. And so clearly we'd like to have a vaccine as soon as possible. We have to balance that with the need to assure that the vaccine is safe and effective. We don't want it to go out too early if in fact we don't have good data on its safety and effectiveness. I think the EUA is a potential mechanism and is addressed actually in the recent FDA guidelines if the data look very promising and I think would require a post-use very extensive system to look at both continuing effectiveness as well as safety issues that may not be designed. Ideally, it would be great to have fully licensed products um, that have gone through the full testing uh, and full evaluation. But I think that will have to be looked at as the situation moves uh, either forward or backward, depending on how we're doing overall in the community. And I think that the details of, of how that would evolve uh, will obviously be a risk and benefit issue, and, and, uh, but, but hopefully will be guided and, and I'm, I'm trust will be guided by uh, immune responses and safety data that are available from the vaccines. I, I think it's really critical for public confidence, for uh, physician confidence, that we do have data that are both promising on both efficacy and safety, which will be very important, particularly if we're talking about very widespread use of these vaccines, which we are. Doctors, would you be able to briefly discuss some of the benefits and drawbacks you see with issuing an EUA for a COVID-19 vaccine? I think the benefits are earlier availability. And hence, uh, if the uh, outbreak is continuing to rise as it is currently, it uh, would potentially allow us to stem it earlier. The potential negative is we might not have all the data we would like on safety and effectiveness, uh, particularly in different populations. And, and so, in essence, the products we might be using might not be as safe and effective as we ideally would like. The FDA in the past and, and has a history of, of being very cautious and careful uh, about these things and, and you know, has really a wonderful history of vaccine safety um, in terms of the products it licensed. So I, I think that if this decision is made, it will be based on, on science um, and it will be based on the risk of continuing severe disease and the benefit of the vaccine and on the scientific data about safety and effectiveness. But it may need to be done if, if, if that is deemed to be important in terms of, of curtailing the outbreak. The decision for an EUA will not be an easy one, and it will be one that uh, will look at what data are available, what the science is, uh, then a decision will be made. It will not be made arbitrarily. Excellent points, doctors. Dr. Ornstein, sticking with you, federal leaders are already beginning to plan for the distribution of a COVID-19 vaccine. How then can ID physicians help inform those efforts? What's very important is ID physicians know who is getting COVID-19. They know who is at risk for transmitting it. Uh, they know uh, about what 
is feasible with regard to implementation issues. So I think it would be very important, particularly at the state and national level and community level, that ID physicians play a part in some of the policymaking with the rollout of the vaccine. At the national level, it will be extremely important to look at uh, priorities for uh, vaccines, since it's unlikely we're going to get 300 and plus million doses the day after the first vaccine becomes available. And I think ID physicians have a major role to play. ID physicians are well represented on the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, the ACIP, which reports to the CDC director and have played a major role in the past in making policy recommendations. And I think uh, that is still very important. And I think they have a unique expertise to bring to bear on this. I totally agree. And I think it is also imperative that ID physicians make sure that when cases are reported to the health department, that the gender and the racial distribution of the cases be recorded so that we have a very complete data on who is being affected by the outbreak so that we can use these data to decide, well, who is at greatest risk. I, I would agree completely. And I think the other issue that's very important is with use, there are a lot of issues that need to be looked at, such as is the effectiveness when in use as good as what looked what came out in the clinical trials? There may be populations that get the vaccine that weren't in the clinical trials. And so it's very important that uh, IV physicians play a role in assuring good surveillance of disease and then determination of vaccination status of people who come down with disease uh, and allow us to measure uh, in observational studies post-use how effective the vaccines are. In addition, I think what would be also useful is to help in setting up safety surveillance systems to look at adverse events, even post-licensure, and to help with trying to determine uh, causal relationships versus coincidental relationships. When you're going to be vaccinating potentially hundreds of millions of people, there are going to be a number of adverse events that follow vaccination purely by coincidence. It's very critical that we have systems that allow us to determine whether uh, a given adverse event is coincidental or causal. Uh, for example, one of the ways that that is done is to look at the incidence of that adverse event in people who are vaccinated versus not vaccinated. It's important that ID physicians play some role in the post-licensure evaluations of these vaccines on a continuing basis. A follow-up for you now. Can federal, state, and local public health systems be leveraged for vaccine distribution? And are there lessons to be learned from remdesivir's distribution? Clearly, state and local health departments have played major roles in other pandemic responses, including the 2009 influenza H1N1 pandemic, uh, the most recent pandemic until now. They played a role in vaccine distribution. They played a role in monitoring both uh, effectiveness and safety. And I think it would be very important to bridge and work with representatives of state and local health departments 
uh, on uh, uh, the best way to get roll vaccine out and get it to the populations that have the highest priority for access. The IDSA has served an important role in the COVID-19 response. Certainly, um, there have been committees that have uh, uh, worked on guidelines for diagnostics and for therapy and, and have been very vocal advocates for distribution of products and, and making sure that that uh, everybody is is uh, uh, in the the mix and 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 certainly available to get um, the remdesivir. I know there have been a number of of challenges and and uh, in trying to establish central more central distribution and equitable distribution has been somewhat of a challenge and and uh, um, and I think that 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 some of those lessons that have been learned in that. Um, to improve that system could be used in terms of vaccine distribution as well. Uh, but I think that the members of IDSA really need to be important advocates for this whole process. And I think that they need to express their trust in the distribution system, their trust in public health, their trust in the CDC, and their trust in the FDA, that we have been doing all of these things for a long time doing them in a very careful and thoughtful manner, and those procedures will continue and that IDSA members will be uh, really leading and helping uh, in those collaborations. And, and so I, I really feel that they need to help us uh, enormously as we move forward in the vaccine efforts. We do have a system. Obviously, this is a bigger distribution, but I think it's very important that IDSA people work with um, state and local health departments with the uh, federal government as well in terms of uh, understanding the systems of distribution, uh, having input into the systems of distribution and uh, assuring uh, that vaccines that are available are used appropriately. I think it will be very, very important. Each state has an immunization program. It's functioned well. Uh, the ACIP has done very well. I think we need to reinforce those institutions, and I, I think they will come through in, in a good way. Great points. Thank you, doctors. Dr. Edwards, are you concerned about public acceptance of a COVID-19 vaccine? And what do you think should be done to boost vaccine confidence and how ID physicians can help do that? I am concerned about the vaccine hesitancy associated with vaccine acceptance and, and uh, even with enrollment in the clinical trials. And, and as I have been evaluating vaccines for, for decades, what I ultimately say to each individual person is that what we know now of this vaccine, it's safe. I would take the vaccine if I could. I would give it to my, my children, my grandchildren. We take this vaccine evaluation seriously. We look at each potential adverse event and see whether it's related or whether it's not. I think we, we take the best science. We look at how the vaccine works in terms of its function against uh, protecting against the infection, um, and we go forward carefully. I think that, that we all see the tremendous burden of COVID-19. We all see that, that we need a way to prevent it. And the power of vaccines is enormous. The last night that I was a pediatric resident, many years ago, I watched 
um, as a child that I could not do anything about died of meningitis. Now we have a vaccine, we've had it for you know, several decades now, that totally eliminates that disease. So none of the resident doctors that take care of, of children anymore have to see what I saw. The power of vaccines are enormous. We could stem this entire tide with an, a safe and effective vaccine. But we're doing it, we're studying the vaccine in a very safe and careful way. We're moving very quickly, but we're using all the systems that we have had for the past decades to assure that the vaccine is safe. I think that it's really important in these initial phase three trials also that we get enrollment from a broad range of the population. We need to see how, just as Dr. Orenstein said, we need to see how the vaccine works in all the population. We need to see that it, it works well in, in, uh, in, in populations, that, that African-American populations and in, in Hispanic populations. So we need people of those, uh, those racial and ethnic groups to participate in these studies so that we can get the information and we are doing this in a safe and careful way. So we, we really need people to understand that we need a vaccine, that we're evaluating it safely and carefully. We would be giving these vaccines to ourselves and our families that we feel comfortable in these studies um, and that people have to, to, to really uh, believe and understand um, the passion with which we feel and the, the confidence which we feel in this process. People are think, some people are thinking we may be short-circuiting the process. We are not. Uh, in essence, if we didn't have this need to demonstrate safety and efficacy, we would be using vaccines today. But we are not because we don't have vaccines that have yet met the criteria for safety and effectiveness. That's why we're going through all of these studies and these trials. Uh, one of the unfortunate words with warp speed is people have had gotten, some people have interpreted that as skipping the usual evaluation. It's not that. The, it is going through the usual evaluation for safety and effectiveness, the need for clinical trials, the need to assure that those data uh, pass FDA uh, requirements as well. And I think it's, it's very important to make that clear to people. Um, and I think it's also very important that, as we were saying earlier, is, and what uh, Dr. Edwards really reinforced, is to try in the clinical trials to get enrollment in a diverse group of people to deal with that. And we need a system in place that will allow us to find uh, whether there are causally related rare adverse events at a, a more rare level. And we also need to balance the risks and benefits. And that will be an important part that the ACIP and other groups will be looking at. Doctors, the last question I'd like to pose is addressed to both of you. COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted underserved communities. Dr. Edwards, you just recently touched on this, including Black and African-American, Latinx, 
and Native American populations. What strategies should be employed to ensure a COVID-19 vaccine reaches those who need it most? And how can ID physicians support this equitable access? Dr. Edwards, we could start with you. The information that we have about groups that are impacted and about comorbidities also that are impacted is very important. I think that we are collecting that data um, and and that is becoming more available uh, upon which to make those decisions. I think that there will be and there continues to be a active uh, work by the COVID vaccine group of the ACIP working group, which is a very important part of the ACIP process to clearly uh, outline that data, the epidemiology, and, and to make sure that those priorities and data are being used to make these decisions. Uh, there has also been the announcement of a National Academy of Medicine committee that will also look at the equitable distribution, and, and that, I think, is, is important and, and likely will have um, uh, representation from the Infectious Disease Society of America community to work and act in that. It's very important to the, the delivery of care to populations that, minority populations and, and populations that that we have physicians that are uh, of those of, of backgrounds. And I think that we and IDSA um, have to be leaders training and supporting young people to go to those communities who they are their communities. And I must say that I'm sure that, that if you were a Native American physician and you went to the communities and you talk with them about what they needed to do or about what the vaccine, that it would carry much more weight than, than, um, than, than others. Um, so we have got to nurture and promote and support people who serve these communities. I can't say that uh, enough. I'm passionate about that and, and that's something that we really have got to, to uh, support and, and foster. When I was director of the United States Immunization Program, my director of communications used to say, what you need is the right messenger uh, uh, message, the right message delivered by the right messenger through the right communications channels. And what that means, in a sense, is understanding what these populations feel about vaccines and getting a message that will reassure them as well as getting people they trust to give that message. And that's why we need to bring together people from those populations, leaders of those populations who are able to address concerns they may feel to enhance uptake of vaccines. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Edwards and Ornstein for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.